Tonight I'd like to address something sometimes referred to as the gay agenda. That game has been agenda. We look at the bigger picture of what the agenda is really about. Uh, it's just an agenda that's going to keep going until they can silence everyone. I have yet to receive my copy of this gay agenda. Welcome everyone to the Gay Agenda podcast. This is a podcast by the Durham LGBT Plus Campaigns Committee. And today we're going to be discussing um, themes from our campaign for intersectionality awareness, focusing on the intersection between race and LGBT plus identities. I'm Erica. I'm the campaign's officer from the LGBT plus association and my pronouns are she, they. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm a member of the campaign's team. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. And hello, everybody. My name is Arunav Shivari Sharma. My pronouns are they and he. Today, we're going to talk about some themes covering, you know, sort of cultural appropriation in the LGBT plus community, um, colorism, and also things about internalized racism or internalized homophobia. And I think it'd be great if we could start with colorism, because I feel like that's a particular problem within especially like POC community, like not just, it's not something that's limited to, you know, just white people thinking fairer skins are more beautiful or like placing higher social value on fairer skins. And I wanted to know like what are your guys' thoughts about that? No, absolutely. I think uh, even within, uh, you know, POC, we have associated an idea of beauty that is extremely Eurocentric, Right. And what we do is we diminish all other entities that are beautiful, all other people that are beautiful for the sake that they do not mimic this current standard. And that is, that's that's problematic in general, but it's also extremely problematic within the queer community. Yeah, because I feel like queer beauty standards can like can somewhat diverge from mainstream beauty standards, but in itself that can sometimes be more difficult to sort of live up to like as non-binary person I feel like a lot of the times when you think of someone who's non-binary you think of like oh slightly mask leaning androgynous white person or maybe like vaguely femme leaning androgynous white person but really people don't really consider how non-binary people might present when they're POC or if they are like leaning more towards one gender presentation than the other and I feel uh, sorry I'm going on a little bit but also, I feel like sometimes because you're a POC as well, because of some PO- some cultures don't have like that concept of being non-binary, like coming from Singapore and being a Chinese person, I don't think we have like that strong idea of that sort of identity. So it's very difficult to even try to emulate that sort of androgynous presentation. Sorry, this did diverge a little bit from the colorism issue. Hannah, do you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, I, I was just going to say... It- seems like it also comes back to what um what the host last episode talking about with media representation and kind of how it is based upon a certain ideal and I think that's what it seems to come back to um, and also links up with like ableism and um, many other types of oppressions just how beauty standards are defined in essentially a quite a racist way as Anna was saying like Eurocentric and in that way, it's quite harmful in how it seems to um, portray everybody who isn't able to fit into that um, category as somehow other or kind of um, almost less in some way. I would actually quite agree with, you know, what both of you were saying, especially when Erica was talking about um, this idea of cultures not having non-binary, um, you know, non-binary modes to, to step on or 
or non-binary existing principles that you can emulate. Um, so I, I'm South Asian and I'm non-binary as well. And even though I present extremely male, uh, I think I, I present my non-binaryness, like my, my performance of my gender in, in a very intrinsic to South Asian culture perspective. Mm. So I would have extremely gorgeous shows, which people might consider extremely normal for the West, but it is me expressing my identity in a way that has been set for me. Mm. Um, back in South Asia, both in India and Pakistan, you can also see this in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka uh, and the other nations of South Asia. You're going to see um, a non-binary identity that's extremely common, and they're called the hijras. Now, the hijras are, are a group of transgender women and intersex uh, people, um, all of who are clubbed into something called the third gender, right? Mm -hmm. So there is an extreme performance of gender there, which is hyper-feminized, of course, um, but it's also very interestingly, um, very different from common femininity. You know, it does not adhere to the patriarchal norms of um, of demureness, of, of being timid. It is loud and proud in its femininity. You know, the saris are not cotton saris that you wrap around your shoulders, but they're loud red silk saris with big bindis and big, uh, big, big makeup, right? And I think though there is that platform for, for non-binary people in South Asia to go on and to see, it is so demonized within society. Mm. And it's so otherized within society that you can't really go and accept it and yet be accepted in society, which is a big fear for, for queer people and queer POC in general. That's really <clears> interesting. It's all, I've also found it, it's quite interesting how you said they're called the third gender. So in trying to deconstruct some kind of gender binary, it still creates another gender rather than just getting rid of it altogether. Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly what happens. Um, and with the creation of the third gender, it though may give some good legal representation, it though may give some good economic representation, both of which are extremely needed, you know, but it also creates um, an identity that's different. And it's different in the sense that it is bound within that, uh, within that historical antecedent. Mm. So yeah, that's, that's a very interesting notion that um, is developing in uh, modern South Asia right now. That is so cool. Um, bringing back a little bit to like the specific issue of colorism, I was just thinking as well, sometimes, I think a lot of the times we do tend to like think about white beauty standards when we think about colorism, because that seems quite obviously linked, like quite clearly. But sometimes different cultures can have their own specific roots for colorism. So at least for me, I know in Chinese culture, the tendency to prefer fair skin comes from like sort of an intersection with capitalism or like just classism. Because it would like historically, if you weren't a laborer and you weren't like working out in the fields, obviously, you would have fairer skin than the poor people who would have to do like manual labor. And that was how they sort of that's, you know, beauty standards have always been like what is the most unattainable so that is like I I wouldn't say necessarily that all forms of colorism have to do specifically with white beauty standards that doesn't mean that they're like any more acceptable or any better because obviously we should just get rid of that whole idea that like one sort of shade of skin color is more prized than the other but um, I just think it's like something to be aware of as well that, you know, because I think this was something that we touched on before as well. Some like certain roots of homophobia in certain cultures obviously have their own roots in 
colonialism and like spreading of like Western ideals into POC cultures that would have been accepting and how that actually, you know, sort of made them regress. But we also need to like acknowledge where certain POC cultures have their own like roots in it. But because if we want to tackle those issues, we can't just be talking about like, oh, we shouldn't just be prizing white beauty standards because that's not the actual root of the problem for that particular group. Um, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and uh, it seems quite true uh, within the culture that you're talking about. But like, um, I've seen, I've also seen a lot of of demonization of the darker skin, especially mm-hmm. happen in South Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, right? And all of that's happening because of the idea of colonization, right? So, um, this is this entire so. Let's let's just talk about South Asia for a moment. We're supposed to we're supposed to be brown people. We're supposed to be uh, dark brown to wheatish complexioned people. And yet, when you look at all kinds of South Asian representation um, in South Asian markets, not South Asian representation outside South Asia, but for the one point I want to say nine billion people that live in the subcontinent. It is only that of fair people, and fair people, mind you, with straight and rebonded hair, good makeup, um, if, if they have moustaches and beards and they're all twirled up, they're all properly done. And that is not how we are supposed to look. Like, we do not look like that as a society. We're not, I mean, the biggest thing is that it creates such a stigma to stick to a certain kind of beauty. And what that does is it creates so many uh, issues for people. And when you think about it, for queer people, it is intensified because you're not just trying to appeal to to beauty standards that are existing socially, but you also want to appeal to the beauty standards that have been set in queer communities. And we know this right now, that queer culture, though it started off within a multiplicity of different races, within within multiple ideas of, of of perspectives. Today, queer culture exists as a subset of white culture. Mm-hmm. And because of that, the idea of queer beauty is very white-centric. So everything that you have to achieve, you not only have to achieve your social standards and your social beauty within your society, but also achieve the social standards of beauty within queer culture, which happen to be white. Mm. Yeah, I think that's like a really interesting point as well, because I think something that came up a lot when we, at least when I was doing these posts for the campaign for intersectionality awareness, is that I realized the some of the most difficult parts of having intersecting minority identities is that sometimes you feel like you're forced to choose which one you're going to align yourself with. It's almost like you can't be both at the same time, because if you talk about you know, one sort of oppression in a community that that's different from the specific community that you're in that's already marginalized. People accuse you of being trying to like sow discord or being like, oh, there's no need to compare oppressions. But the thing is, that's not what people are actually doing. If we want like a truly egalitarian, like LGBT plus community or truly egalitarian, like within our own POC communities, we need to address these issues because we can't say that we're being fair to everyone if we're being fair to a very specific type of person within the community itself. Yeah, I feel like that's really, uh, that's exactly it. It's um, the way that it seems to be in um, LGBT plus communities and trying to maybe address issues of race. It's trying to equalise 
and almost say oh yeah we're all you know we're all lgbt plus you know we're all very similar but at the same time completely um aren't able to acknowledge the fact that somebody who's a poc and identifies as a member of the lgbt community has a different experience from somebody who's white and without kind of acknowledging the oversights that are made even by people who are marginalized in one sense of their uh, identity it really um it really hinders what the community is able to do in order to um help kind of recognize intersectionality and help make equality i was just thinking also like your point um earlier anov about the um these certain beauty standards that are not natural obviously to like south asian communities and i think that can be like fairly common in a lot of other areas as well the beauty standard is always something that's so difficult to achieve and i think that like kind of intersects quite a lot with capitalism because obviously all these companies want to show you something that's very difficult to obtain so that you you have this like need to buy all these products and like keep buying things to achieve this like completely unattainable ideal because the likelihood is like all of these images and stuff not only have are they like a spe- very specific narrow image of beauty but they've been like retouched and photoshopped or even if it's not photoshopped there's like so many tricks you can do with cameras and lighting and posing to make yourself into this ideal that's great in like a still photo but it's completely unattainable in real life and yeah that's just like another point of intersectionality i want i thought i wanted to like point out quite quickly sorry anov what were you saying before i interrupted yeah absolutely um right before i go on to uh, go on to the other point that i had um i completely agree with what you're saying um also it's the idea that capitalism comes into south asia in a very different context like it mm. comes by uh, uh the west right indigenous markets are not supposed to be in the way uh, be capitalist in the way that the west was especially in india the biggest country in south asia formal or you know formal capitalism only came in 1991 uh foreign companies were only allowed to come in until 1991 so you had no coca cola till 1991 and that's how you do not have the idea of capitalism influencing um on beauty standards till 1991 but what you did have was um the west influencing it mm. you did have the the, the struck a notion from uh, about 190 years of colonial rule right that this certain idea of beauty is the utmost right and it is so intrinsically done within culture that that uh, folk songs that my grandmother was singing when she was a baby and her grandmothers were singing when they were kids and the folk songs that i'm singing or my next generations are going to be singing all talk about how one needs to be pure as white butter to be beautiful mm. and that is not from our culture but that has become so intrinsically linked with everything because it's lasted for so long that mm. now there is no way to alienate it from the culture itself you get me mm. yeah but uh I, so the point that i was about to make was you know this very idea of intersectionality it comes from radical feminists in the late 80s um it comes from radical feminists who are who are, of course they're, they're brilliant in the in the in the authorship but they are not regarded as the best radical feminists because of their race mm-hmm. they are not regarded as the best post colonial thinkers because of their feminist leanings so what happens is these brilliant women and this is all based around new york at the time they come together and they create this idea that sure i may be a feminist but i'm also black 
or I'm also brown. And nobody can take my race away from me, even in my academic analysis. And I think that is where it comes on as a fringe movement. You know, intersectionality remains a fringe movement of the feminist movement of, um, of post-colonial thought till very late. Till I want to say about five, six years ago, when Dior starts making t-shirts that say I'm a feminist and selling it for 750 pounds, right? So it's around that time when feminism becomes common, when this idea of the lean-in feminism, you know, the shadow side of feminism becomes common, that we actually start exploring intersectionality. And it is then that I think how much white queer culture has taken, has appropriated from POC cultures, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And when, when, you, when you start analyzing it, you see that the, the erasure was so swift, the erasure of queer communities of color was so swift and was so well done that by the 2000s, the only imagery that you had of queer people was either uh, Neil Patrick Harris or or, or, or Ellen DeGeneres, you know? (laughs) Like, where are we losing our brilliance, our Mm. amazing aesthetic um, qualities? our philosophical amazingness. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm struck on the word amazingness because it is that, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, no, where are we losing all of the abilities of queer communities of color because of this erasure? And it is then that you actually think that with queer people who are not white want to indulge in such a community, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, that's especially like, it's especially clear with the example of, I mean, Stonewall Wall riots wouldn't have happened without people uh, who, if it, if it was only people who were white and LGBT plus, that a large part of um, the history of community just would never come about in the, in the way it did. Um, and I think, I thought there's something really interesting. This is, this is actually going back a bit, I realised, but there's something quite I found quite interesting what you said, Erica, about um, the example of um, how photos are taking and lighting and editing and all these things um, you can do to try and make people appear more white. But at the same time, um, I mean, this I guess it's interesting. There's still examples of um, kind of cultural appropriation or um, like the um, the kind of arguments that some of what the Kardashians is doing is blackfishing in wanting to take on the identity and just appear to almost like appear to be um Mm -hmm. to be black i mean i think Mm -hmm. um they're like half armenian or something so that that's um that's one thing but at the same time they're kind of um they're like wearing braids and things like that um obvious examples of a kind of um pick and choose attitude really i mean isn't that just all of pop culture though um, when when Ariana Grande was accepting her first um, her first big award as an independent artist, not as a Nickelodeon um, not as a Nickelodeon actor, um, she said, "Oh my God, this is my this is the best quinceanera present ever." I'm like, "You aren't Latina. <laughs> your your name is Ariana Grande. Grande like the Starbucks cup, Grande. So you are not a Latina. Don't don't try to." portray yourself as such yeah it definitely expands to almost all cultures really that aren't just um aren't, that aren't just western really i think mm-hmm. it shows how it's um any like um poc kind of identity community 
and certain um yeah certain parts of the culture can just be adopted whether they're um whether at least with the kardashian example obviously just is just for people um who are specifically americans who are black but at the same time as you say it, it it's even with um like native wearing native american headdresses at halloween or wearing um certain um, clothing that's a kind of east asian in origin and um oh, there's so many examples such as those i think something i want to like because sometimes when i when a lot of the times when i'm on the internet and then i see discourse about cultural appropriation a really common thing that bothers me is when people can't understand the difference between appropriating POC cultures and then people also saying like, oh, well, you know, anime has characters with yellow hair and blue eyes, so they're appropriating white people. Or like, oh, well, um, K-pop stars like to dye their hair blonde and put in like grey or like green or blue context. So aren't they trying to look like white people? And, you know, like there is, I think there is a very clear difference that these people are just being purposefully obtuse about and I think the post that the campaign committee um made um no promo but <laughs> um yeah the post that we made like mentioned very clearly and I just want to like highlight it because I sometimes couldn't put it into words myself like because the, the difference seems so clear to me that I couldn't I struggled to like put it into words and the way they put it was in the post was that this um, trans feminist writer, Julia Serrano, explained that cultural appropriation has three elements that make it, you know, so damaging. And first is that it erases the voice and the identity of the community whose culture is being appropriated. It exploits this community and this exploitation is done by, by a dominant group. And also it denigrates the marginalized group as a result of these actions. So I think it's really clear to see like, one, there's that power asymmetry that means that a lot of POC cultures, even if they're, you know, doing these things like dyeing their hair blonde or like putting blue contacts in or colouring their characters that way, that's not appropriation. That's a result of these like, the, you know, the same beauty standards we were talking about before. And then also like there's no denigration involved. But when it comes to white people sort of like, you know, putting on these, um, you know, the cone hats from East Asia, I think, or if they're, like, putting on sombreros and whatever. Like, it, there's a very clear element of mockery, I feel. It's not. It's definitely not something that's appreciative. It's not something that's celebrative. It is very clearly, like, to them, it's just a costume and it's completely dehumanising for the, for the actual people whose cultures they're stealing from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much taken in isolation from... The culture and the history which it embodies and without actually recognizing the privilege and being able to kind of just pick something up and not actually it's like being able to um and the even with like the kardashians being able to try and like take up parts of the black culture but then not face any of the um experiences in terms of like um marginalization because mm -hmm. that usually comes with that from people of that community you know, I, I don't want to say you need to suffer in order to appreciate the culture that uh, POC bring to you. That's not what we're trying to say. Yeah, but the yeah, fact yeah. is, uh, the culture that exists, the culture that we're talking about, this POC culture, comes from a myriad of struggle. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. to then ignore all that struggle and just take the path that you like is is rather stupid so there is this um there's this painting by Alice Neel from the 1960s and it shows this young uh, indian woman in a in a gorgeous pink sari that is quite old and she reaches new york because she's going to start studying in connecticut if i'm not wrong um so she's just come there by a plane and she's sitting there with her bindi you know the the red uh, dot mm-hmm. thing that we put in the middle of her head uh, and her hair are all plaited up it's all oiled up and she's sitting there very demurely um this painting came into quite some recognition a couple of years ago because of um this online trend where where people both uh, native americans and uh, south asians started talking about how when they would go up to somebody and they would ask oh, what ethnicity are you or as most white people do from where are you um they would say oh we are indian and the response would be oh are you a feather indian or a dot indian oh my gosh right oh, yeah and um it's it's just so it's so interesting to see to think the things that are both so 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 socially significant in our cultures um were a point of mockery for us and then when you go to coachella and you see all of these people they're all wearing bindis they're all having feathers in their hair and you're like oh wait you're the one who told me in school that you didn't like the way i smelled of turmeric and now you're going to order a turmeric latte in starbucks like i don't get it Um, yeah it, it is absolutely frustrating but like also i think um there is another point that needs to be made here especially when you were talking about our coming you talked about um k-pop stars you know putting blue contacts and everything that is um okay i need to phrase this correctly because i don't want people coming out to kill me also <laughs> i don't want ariana grande stands to kill me i do like ariana now i did not <laughs> like her earlier but okay Yeah so if you're an Ariana Grande fan I sing all of her things okay so no don't kill me coming back to it um okay so that is of course um we we do mimic western standards there is no doubt about it with the blonde hair with the blue eyes but we are not appropriating white culture mm-hmm. because there is no singular white identity mm-hmm. white identity comes from where you are there is a british identity there's an irish identity there's an identity that is french that is no uh, that is uh, german that is from italy that's from uh, you know spain all of those identities exist and those are cultures but there is nothing that can be broadly classified as white culture mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so when so many people especially during uh, this summer when everybody was talking about uh, you know i i have never seen so much enthusiasm amongst people uh, that are not uh, people of color about um about issues that affect people of color mm-hmm. so over the summer when so many people were talking about all of this and they were given one ridicule back that oh how, why are you not proud of being white or why aren't you proud of your white culture the idea behind it is that you can be proud of being french you can be proud of the way you look you can be proud of the culture that you come from but you cannot say that the entire ethnicity has one culture mm. the reason why we say that there is black culture despite the fact that there is a whole ethnicity that lives in uh, you know 
that lives with different cultures is because it is a created culture created within the United States or within diasporic black people across the world in the UK, in France, right? Who created identities because of them having no uh, connection to their past. Mm. So when they were creating identities, they created modern culture. In the same way, when we talk about Latino culture, they bring in their own specific parts. You do not go up to somebody from Brazil and say, do you rumba? They samba. <laughs> you know? And that is the thing. There is intrinsic parts of, uh, of our culture that we understand, but there is a broad connection to all of it. There is no particular broad connection to various white cultures. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting as well because coming from um, Singapore and being Chinese person, something I found really interesting was always when people refer to like Asians. I'm very aware that they have a specific idea of what... It's usually almost always East Asians and it's usually always lumping Chinese, Koreans and Japanese people all together. And it completely ignores like South Asians or, um, you know, Southeast Asians, which are all like completely different, even with like coming from Singapore, which is a Southeast Asian country as well. And being situated, you know, between like near Malaysia and Thailand, Vietnam and like all those areas, like I'm aware that there's like very distinct differences. But I know when I come to the UK, if I say like I'm from Singapore, half the time people think that's from that's somewhere in China, not in Southeast Asia. And then also, you know, I think, I mean, I'm already lucky enough that I'm a Chinese person in Singapore. And like, sometimes I have Indian friends and they say when they go overseas and then they tell someone they're from Singapore, they're like, oh my gosh, do you speak Chinese? I can't believe you you live in China. And it's just like, well, I don't either of those. But basically, like in a way also these concepts of like, oh, you're appropriating Asian culture or you're, oh, you're appropriating like Hispanic culture in itself kind of like homogenizes all these widely different cultures and just it like essentializes them into one specific image or idea that in itself can kind of be harmful and can kind of perpetuate this sort of like even within POC communities there will end up being a sort of hierarchy and I think colorism slightly plays into it as well like Chinese communities will tend to look down on communities with darker skin colors and like say they're dirty or whatever which is obviously completely wrong and like disgusting that they do that but yeah it's it's very this is a really complex issue and I'm not I'm not speaking about it very well but it's this essentialization that's really awful I guess like it's so in itself it kind of erases the rich diversity that like all these cultures have and it's so frustrating because on one hand I don't want to say that people need to be like complete like completely in the know about every little aspect of every different culture they like come across but also at the same time I think Obviously, because, you know, we live in such an information-rich environment now, especially with the internet and everything. It's hard for people, I guess, to not take these cognitive shortcuts to rely on stereotypes to sort of, like, guide their actions and stuff. But also, I feel like it shouldn't be difficult to not be offensive with that, to always, like, keep at least an open mind and not sort of come out with these ridiculous racist assumptions or, like, yeah, like, they're... I don't... Yeah, the difficulty is like obviously you can't no one can be like perfectly knowledgeable about everything and I think that's not reasonable to expect. But it's difficult when these cognitive shortcuts and these stereotypes that they rely on are inherently already so negative that it ends up reflected in their actions. And obviously it's really hurtful because even if it's something 
really tiny, like just like common microaggressions. The fact is when someone lives with that every day and has to face that constantly, it is going to wear them down and it is going to have a significant impact on their life. I guess it's a bit difficult sometimes to understand and really balance that. Um, yeah, just find a balance between that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's about being aware of your own kind of nat- pretty natural short-sightedness. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as you say, we can't, uh, we can't know everything, but at the same time, with um with the culture that we've all grown up in it's just so likely that we're going to get so many things wrong being able to acknowledge that and work on it is mm. definitely a first step no absolutely and i think there's no problems in making mistakes as far as you're trying mm. you know mm-hmm. try that's the least you can do <laughs> i mean when when we when we talk about this idea of um of people mixing up all cultures when, when mm-hmm. they say Asian, they just want to include all Asian identities. Uh, but, uh, you know, they, they want to say that the Chinese, the Korean, the Japanese identities and all South Asian identities are one. It's, it's so frustrating for me at that moment in time that, okay, you want to be racist. You want to uh, call us things. Sure, do your research. Mm. You know, <laughs> you want to be racist to me? Do your research. You have 4G internet in this world today. So it, it's, 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 it's the most frustrating thing for me when um, there are racists that accost me online, especially on, on queer platforms such as Grindr and Tinder. Oh. And, um, and they say things that are, that, that I, I honestly, I don't even want to attack them. I don't even want to say anything wrong to them. I don't even want to give them anything back. All I want to do is like, oh my dear darling, you need to go to school. You know, <laughs> you might be 24 or whatever, but you truly just need to go back to school. So my, my favorite interaction was from a couple of weeks ago where somebody texted me, uh, oh, from where are you? And I say, I'm from India. I was like, so are you black or are you Asian? I'm like, do you not know where India is? <laughs> like, did you not do school geography? I don't know. So yeah. I did not know what to answer mm. them. And that was that. Yeah. That's some, even if, that's some like very basic geography, lack of knowledge combined with racist attitude. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's also that when everybody... Um, so whenever uh, people have to attack me or accost me when I'm wearing Indian clothes, right? They'll start calling me things like um, they, they start calling me things that are denigrative to the Middle Eastern identities, and I'm like, I am not from the Middle East, but I'm not going to let you attack them either. Like, mm. what are you trying to do? If you want to attack me, look at me, talk to me, listen to my accent for the least. I mean, I roll my R so much that I. I pronounce myself as Indian the moment I walk into any room, right? Take a minute, go on Google, and type insults to Indian people, <laughs> right? And I think it's all okay to, it's online because you can just, you, know, you can compartmentalize it. You can be like, okay, I'm just brushing this under the rug or whatever. But especially when this happens in person, it is so harmful. And mm. it is so weird that it happens within the university as well. Like, if it's happened to me, I am 110% sure that it has happened to so many other queer POC here. Mm-hmm. You know, I am 
I, I do not go out. I do not uh, party late at night. I barely walk around after, I want to say, eight in the evening or nine in the evening, you know? Mm-hmm. And even if I have to deal with people in my one of experiences of being outside like that, I absolutely wonder how so many other PFCs have to deal with all of this, mm-hmm. you know? It was in my second year that I was accosted for the first time and I was called um, a P-A-K-I, um, F-A-G-G-O-T. Oh my goodness. Right? And I was like, okay, cool. I have thick skin. And that person didn't realize at the time that if they were going to physically assault me, I would have assaulted them back and they would have gotten a thrashing. You know, look at me. I'm a broad, big person. <laughs> but like, if that was to happen to somebody who was a fresher, if that was to happen to somebody who thought that they were coming to an international um, university that mm-hmm. has multiculturalism, that accepts people from everywhere, and it would happen to them on one of their first days, mm-hmm. I do not know that they would have wanted to stay in Durham for any for, for more than a minute. Yeah, definitely. I hope. I mean, have you have you guys heard of the the dismantling Dome culture yeah. campaign? Yeah. I mean, finger, fingers crossed that can at least address mm-hmm. somewhat of the um, many different kind of slightly more toxic elements over mm-hmm. the university. Yeah, that sounds like a really awful experience. It's okay. We have thick-skinned people. If we can listen to all of this and we can give it back to them, uh, believe that we are there to heal. You know, we're, we're here. We're not hoping. We're here to survive. We're here to thrive. Mm. So take off on the side and walk on the side of the road because I've occupied the main. <laughs> this discussion kind of really reminded me of like something I wanted to talk about, which is a lot of, you know, how how can we sort of handle the way some white people are like, especially white people in the queer community, because when you try to talk to them about these issues of like cultural appropriation or racism in general, especially in particular within the queer community, they tend to have sometimes, at least in my in my experience, they'll have this reaction where it's like, oh, well, but, you know, like, it's okay because we're all oppressed communities are like, well, I'm gay. So like, it doesn't really count as racism or something like that, which sounds so ridiculous when I say it like that. But that's the same feeling I have when they say it. And I'm just like, I fully don't know how to respond to that because that assertion is so completely ridiculous. And yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever had similar experiences. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think that's the, uh, that's the queer version of, oh, I have a black friend. I can't be racist. (laughs) Definitely. You get me? Mm. That's a queer version of it. Oh, I'm gay. I can't be racist. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, SNL made a parody of uh, of Megan McCain this way, who uh, I think A.D. Bryant was playing her and she went, and this is not racist because my hairdresser is gay. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I think it's, it's interesting how it shows trying to equate types of like marginalization it's almost like completely different issues and different origin effects and things like that. Obviously, there's like still overlapping similarities, but it's almost like somebody who's had to tackle their own internalized homophobia and like coming out and like all the different um, things involved of being LGBT is like, therefore, just like on the same footing of almost being anti-racist by automatically, like by default. Mm. without having to do any kind of know, greater self-reflection I think especially like I mean being white I feel like it's 
it often feels like um how it's portrayed at least is that you know racism all, all racism was solved with like the civil rights movement and now we've just solved all lgbt plus issues now there's gay marriage and that's it done like well it's yes. like it's like when i say we're in a when like a post-feminist age post-racist and it's all kind of like sunshine and rainbows from here on out kind of thing mm. or like at least as you said like the idea of accepting being accepting of like some random kind of queer person you know just automatically makes you like universally like liberal and accepting mm-hmm. quite um quite short-sighted i mean i think i'm just going off like what i vaguely remember from one of my modules recent recently this year which is kind of like political psychology and there are like certain there there is this thing where they find that if you're sort of you have prejudice to like one group of people like if you're prejudiced towards you know gay people you're you might be more likely to be predisposed to being prejudiced towards like you know other minority groups like different um minority races or people of disabilities and stuff like that but i don't think that necessarily works the other way around where if you're you know where if you're accepting of gay people you're necessarily that much more accepting of like you know other races or people with disabilities like i i can't say for sure because i actually haven't read anything specifically about like the you know the reverse relationship of that but at least in my experience like you know because i think people don't want obviously nobody wants to be labeled a racist Except for like some weird people on Twitter who will literally be like say like I am a racist and be be like weirdly proud of it. I don't understand them. But most people are like obviously they are resistant to that idea. But it the thing is that's not helpful. Like just saying you're not a racist isn't going to undo the damage you have done. Quite pos like, and it's quite likely you have done some damage to like other minority groups or you know because. Just just like kind of as a byproduct of living in the society that we do now, we, ha- we have grown up with these certain stereotypes and we have and the thing is, we have to actively work to undo them. And just saying like, oh, I'm not a racist, so like, don't accuse me of this or just saying like, well, I've experienced oppression. So like, it's not it's not fair to accuse me of being an oppressor. That's just completely unhelpful. And it just kind of I think it regresses the movement for all of us if we refuse to you know I sorry I understand it's really difficult but we just have to acknowledge that we're not going to be right all the time and it would be so much easier for all of us if we're willing to accept that and then look forward to you know improving ourselves improving those around us so that you know we can make actual positive change rather than just close our eyes and pretend everything's okay because that just makes us complicit in any ongoing oppression and any ongoing harms that are being done to the communities and very real harms because you know like you said it it can contribute to any any self-oppression cannot contribute to like the internalized homophobia or internalized racism of people in these communities and it's really we can't if the more we close our eyes and pretend everything's okay the more we're allowing that those harms to continue happening mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. absolutely i yeah. think uh there's there's a two-pronged thing there's a two-pronged argument uh, that needs to be made here mm. first is the idea of palatability right we will accept mm. queerness as far as it is palatable so we will accept somebody who looks like Pete Buttigieg and speaks like Pete Buttigieg who otherwise 
would not be any different from us except that he likes men, but we will not accept somebody who is queerer than that, who expresses their femininity further, or who destroys social boundaries more. You know, it is the idea that somebody like Ellen or somebody like Neil Patrick Harrison coming back to his, you know, your 2000 icons, but whatever, <laughs> is both of them are palatable because they represent good imagery that you would anyway enjoy. They're not challenging you. They're not, um, they're not taking you to task. They're married in relationships or, you know, they're either married or in relationships that have been lasting a very long time. They talk to all kinds of people. Ellen sits um, in the same bleachers as George Bush. There is nothing that you need to be afraid of them about. And when is somebody such as, um, well, take anybody. I I, I think my favorite favorite person right now is uh, Dominique Jackson, who plays Electra on Pose. Yes. You know? Yes, oh. yes. I absolutely love her. And she will never be palatable because she's so loud, she's so proud. She expresses her femininity in the most feminine way possible. And femininity is looked down upon in a patriarchal society. Mm. You know? And Kate Miller puts this very eloquently. She says, and I quote, cunt, our essence, our offense. So it is the idea that because femininity is looked down upon any... um any kind of expressions of femininity, especially by people who are not not supposed to be feminine in, in the social world, mm-hmm. is wrong. And then there's also the idea of masculinity that uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of queer women uh, project, mm-hmm. right? So uh, there was this entire character on SNL that ran through the '90s. Um, it was called Pat, if I'm not wrong. And now Pat was supposed to be. Uh, uh, like it was, it was played by a woman in a fat suit, a bob haircut, would wear a shirt and pants, right? Uh, would have um, a, a, a pair of glasses on and everything. And the joke every time that Pat was on screen was, oh my God, we don't know if Pat is a man or a woman, mm. right? That was popular culture, not accepting femininity um, or masculinity because it was not palatable for them. So I think it's the idea that sure you can accept gay people or sure you can accept queer people in general, but only you, you, you only do that as far as they're palatable to you. Mm. You know, mm. I think I've lost track of my second point right now. <laughs> so yeah, we'll come back to that. We'll come yeah. back to that. So well, it'll right? come back to you at some point. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think um, also to do with what you were saying, Erica, and on the back of that is also, in fact, a good example um, of of this is in uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race uh, by Rennie Adio Lodge that seems like the entire world has read this summer. Um, but how she says in the book um, that it comes a point that it's like you can't, it's not worth the kind of emotional and mental energy it takes to kind of explain why to somebody why what they're saying is wrong when for like a number of cases with white people all the results in is them feeling this sense of um white fragility Mm -hmm. or kind of white guilt and then just gets like stuck there on the kind either defensiveness um where they're trying to kind of avoid this label of being racist 
which almost seems worse than what the actual content of what they were saying is um or else that they maybe acknowledged that what they were saying um was harmful but aren't able to kind of get past this point so they feel this sense of kind of just like immense guilt almost but then don't invest their time and energy in being able to kind of educate themselves in order that they don't make those mistakes in the future or that they're able to kind of broaden perspective their perspective to kind of gain more understanding of these issues and they're just kind of left stuck on the platform of realizing that they feel slightly guilty about it but without actually doing anything um and it really shows how it's just like it's not very it's not very productive really mm-hmm. um and yeah what it really need what is really needed is that um investment in order to make change happen rather than just um either just acknowledging a mistake that was made is being able to not make that mistake again in the future or at least try to do mm. i think that kind of like that ties into something i've been thinking about a lot which is you know i feel when when poc people have this conversation and especially when they try to have this conversation with white people or maybe you know um lgbt plus people with cishet people or you know any sort of minority group talking with the a person from the dominant group is that a lot of the times i feel that these dominant groups they have almost this entitlement to the person's labor in like telling them like oh explain to me why you feel hurt by this or explain to me you know like what what can i do better and like i see it a lot online as well like even like even very simple things like they will kind of sometimes i can see like maybe they don't genuinely mean it like bad intention they're not trying to find flaws with the argument they are kind of trying to learn in itself that's like it's so entitled to be like well you if you want me to change you have to do this emotional labor of like explaining your trauma explaining the struggles of like your community to me and then I'll believe you and I think it's like I think I'm like I mentioned before like we are in a very information rich era we have the internet we have you know so many sources we have I mean people over the summer I've seen so many you know compilations of like resources to read about you know black um liberation movements or like lgbt liberation movements the information is all out there if you're just willing to put in like five seconds to google it and you don't have to you know force people force these um minority communities to explain themselves to you because you think it's more worth it coming from their mouths i know some people sort of like they can they they can argue like oh you know i'm just Obviously, like, I just want to know I'm getting the right information. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. You can find those compilations of pe- compilations of resources made by people by those communities. And then, you know, it's the same thing. Like, just, I, I really dislike this idea that, you know, a lot of people, because they're stuck in that point of fragility, like you said, or like just feeling guilty but not knowing what to do about it. And then they kind of latch on to people from these minority communities to, like, help them or whatever. That's also just the wrong way to go about it and I think that was like not um that was also one of the key things that we I think me and Anne when we started this campaign we wanted to address as well because actually yeah the committee members we're not all people with disabilities we're not all POC but that's not the point because the point is we're trying to help educate and we're trying to give these like very brief simple resources 
just like as the starting point for people to sort of be able to have these conversations themselves. Like this podcast in itself is also it's also similar to what we're trying to do. We want people to have that sort of independence and look for these resources and start to talk about these things by themselves because it's not fair to put this constant burden of education on minority communities on top of all the injustices and oppression that they're facing already. I think it also reflects in um, the LGBT community in that it's almost, like you say, somebody who's uh, non-binary or just like doesn't identify as cisgender and then everyone's like, so explain yourself to me. Go through all this like, Mm. all tell me about every all your thought processes and everything or how you feel whereas that's just not reciprocal and it's like it's not it's not equitable in that Mm. people who are um like cis head people are able to just um almost put that demand on somebody else without having to do anything in return or Mm. just just um demanding of somebody goes through that emo- say emotional labour um, mm-hmm. for their own benefit when um, I mean obviously in the um, example with people of colour it's often exp- almost explaining the entire community like they're mm-hmm. made as like a representative of an entire race that they need to um, like ex- somehow explain the, mm-hmm. the history of to some um, white person but um, I think there's still the, in both cases, there's still a demand on people's yeah emotional labor that just isn't recognized. No, absolutely. And um, I think there's there's another part to it. Like, if you want to ask me about a specific issue that you think I would be able to answer best, go on ahead. I think that you're then trying to learn. You know, if you want to talk to me about the effects mm-hmm. of colonization on the picturization of uh, Hindu gods and goddesses in the art of the Punjab hills in the 1700s, go on. I can tell you some stuff about that. But I would if love you want to hear to about ask... that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, if I, that's, that's uh, maybe a different conversation. I would yeah. love to but hear like, that. <laughs> no, absolutely. But if like you want to ask me, um, oh, why should I not call you P-A-K-I? I'm like, boy, there are resources and resources don't try to tell me that you don't know anything by now if you don't know anything you've been living in a void and that's impossible because if it was possible I would be living in it too <laughs> so, yeah. no I think um, I remembered my second point if I might ah, say that right now yes of course yeah I, I got it the moment Hannah started speaking after me I was like okay <laughs> that was my point I'm, I'm so stupid about that yeah so of course the first one was the palatability in, the, in terms of gender but then there's also this idea of palatability in terms of race mm. right And in terms of expression of race and expression of body types. um, So I'd hope you'd you'd listen to this song called uh, It's Rain and Men. Hallelujah, (laughs) it's rain and men. LGBT anthem. And Osborne's classic. (laughs) Queer anthem, brilliant. Now, the two singers behind it, I know of one of them, I think her name was Martha Walsh. Um, They were both black women who were uh, heavyset. And who were brilliant singers. They'd been singing demos for people for quite some time. And they'd been singing songs which were marketed under their names, but not their faces. And when the song was then performed in concerts through the 90s, um, a thinner person would be sent on stage Mm -hmm. to lip sync to their audios. And 
it is in the fact that somebody like uh, Viola Davis, who is, if nothing else, the equivalent of um, of Meryl Streep, graduated from Juilliard just like her, equally brilliant emotive actor, very good at comedy as well, right, is looked upon as the black Meryl Streep mm. because of her coming in and her becoming palatable this late. So there's this entire channel called Be Kind Rewind on YouTube where they talk about Oscar races of the best actress category and everything. And they say how in 1972, when there were two black women nominated for best actress, uh, Miss Ross playing Billie Holiday um, in, in The Lady Sings the Blues and uh, Miss Cicely Tyson, one of my favorite actresses of all time, uh, in Sounder, Miss Cicely Tyson was not promoted by her own studio because they thought that she was too black. They thought that she was too rooted in black identity, that she was, her, her movie, which was about, um, which was set in the South and it was set in a plantation and things of the sort, right? They thought that it was too much for people to agree on. And of course, Liza won that year, which we are like, we are happy for Liza because it's Liza uh, with a Z. But it's the fact that somebody like Mrs. Lee Tyson had to monitor her identity in order to be accepted as something. And when she didn't, she wasn't accepted. It's in the fact that The Color Purple, which is one of the best movies of Hollywood ever, got multiple nominations. If I'm not wrong, got 11 nominations and took home zero awards. Whoopi didn't win. Oprah didn't win. None of the screenwriting won. Nobody won in the movie. It got 11 nominations. Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. It isn't the fact that there is an identity that needs to be seen as presentable. That if I go out there and I wear, um, you know, traditional Indian clothing and I speak in an Indian accent, I'm not going to be looked upon as palatable enough for the British audiences. It's in the fact that somebody like Preeti Patel does this, uh, and though we, you know, I personally dislike her to my core, uh, will not be wearing a sari ever. Because the moment she wears a sari, she's too Indian. Mm -hmm. You know? It's in the fact that when somebody does the smallest thing to acknowledge their backgrounds, they look upon like, oh, why are you bringing that up now? Do you think that's going to get you extra brownie points? Like, no. It's just who I am. I'm talking about me. And I think it's a very myriad complex argument that of course we are not experts on, but like we mm -hmm. experience every day as well. So yeah. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I don't, that was really great. And I wish we could talk about this a bit more, but I do want to like at least touch on one of our other topics that I was hoping we could cover today. And one, it was medical racism, because I think that's something that, you know, some some of us might not necessarily think about too much because, you know, we're all sort of um quite young, quite healthy college students and everything. But I think it's a very difficult issue as well, the way that... um Because, you know, healthcare is so intrinsic to having a good quality of life. And, to, and also race is something that's going to be very difficult to hide. You can't... You, you can't pretend to suddenly be a white person. Like, I can't... Unless I get a lot of plastic surgery... And somehow grow, I think, like 10 cm. I don't think I could pass for a white, but a white woman or anything like that. But um, yeah, and it's 
I I think that when especially for LGBT people, the, our choices for medical services can be so limited. Like finding sexual health doctors who are I guess like more experienced with LGBT clients and more sensitive to that, and then also trying to find someone who isn't going to discriminate against you based on whether like unconsciously or consciously is so difficult because you don't have that choice. Sometimes there's like, sometimes you can't just find your specific medical health service elsewhere because you're both, you know, you need the LGBT specific care. And then also you're limited by your race to the, as to the quality of care that you provide. And I think that's something that's like so awful. And I thought maybe we want to like touch on that a little bit. I don't know if you guys have any like experience or like have heard anything about this sort of topic. I feel like it's not something that's commonly talked about in at least in university circles. So, I mean, I've heard of the as an example of um, in textbooks the pictures when it's how to diagnose people with different um, conditions or different um, like diseases and things that the, quite often, mm-hmm. or at least at least definitely um, historically the pictures that they've had are of white people and so it's just how that how that like um it maybe it's like certain some like red marks on somebody's skin is a symptom of this disease it's like how would you even know how to diagnose that on somebody who naturally it doesn't they're not white like it's not going to look the same as in the picture mm. and so it's like it seems like there's um definitely some cases of that where it's just goes unquestioned i mean i've not heard of um of experiences on a personal basis in the united kingdom but i have heard of experiences and i've seen people um experience racism within um within this within um you know um such a setup especially mm-hmm. in the united states so mm-hmm. there was this entire uh, a friend of mine was telling me about um a friend of theirs, so who um, had gotten their appendix removed, if I'm not wrong. I know very less about science, so excuse my knowledge <laughs> of uh, of the organs, yeah. But so I think it was the appendix or something. And it is um, a surgery that, well, requires time to recuperate and often can cause pain to a person. Mm-hmm. So they were Black and uh, their doctor did not give them, did not prescribe them uh, heavy painkillers, but gave them painkillers that are like very mild, which were not doing anything for them. And it's because they thought that as a black person, they might use um, the painkillers for something else. So it's in the fact that the biggest, uh, you know, the the entire uh, problem of the opioid addictions in the United States is not because of illegal drugs, but it's because of addiction to opioid pills that are being given out by doctors to white people who do not know that they are not supposed to consume so many of them, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they're not educated in medicine. And, you know, even even half of that, even half of that is not afforded to uh, brown and black people who often require that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I think medical racism is such an important discussion. It's in the fact that all the medical trials that have ever happened um, on human subjects, except I want to say in the last 20 years, happened on um, Black women. 
they happened on black people in general, right? Or they happened in internment camps in the Philippines. They happened in Guantanamo Bay where uh, Latino uh, people were kept, right? And it's, it's, it's so frustrating that human experiments were used to develop medicine. And now that that has been developed, their descendants or their people are not even being given, um, I wanna say the, the, the idea of human, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea of well, humanity in itself, they're not being afforded that. And they're being looked mm-hmm. upon as people who need to be cared for as if they were children. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I think like that's so horrible. I when you were talking about like how you know medical experiments were done on like a lot like you know unfairly on like black women or people in internment camps, it was also reminding me. I think of I think I can't remember the specifics, but I heard my friend in biology talk about this because they learned about this experiment that was I think it was done in the U.S. and what happened was they got this I think community of. I think it was black men who were infected with HIV and pretended to them that they were giving them like this sort of health, free healthcare thing or something along of those along those lines. And what they didn't actually tell these men was that these men had HIV, I think, and they they had a they had like treatment by then, but they wanted to see what were the effects of like how HIV progressed in the human body. So they just didn't tell these men their diagnosis. They didn't like treat them at all and they just basically watch the progression of the disease and these men obviously had no idea that like they didn't even know they had the disease so there was no chance for them to get any sort of um you know any any treatment for it and it's I I don't know like that was so completely inhumane and horrendous and the thing is I know like a lot of people especially white people now will be like oh but that happened in like I don't know the 90s the 80s the 1800s whatever but that or that in itself, like that history, and that's not it's not an isolated incident. And there's a long history of you know these POC communities and like marginalized communities being exploited by the medical industry. And it's it's something that obviously is going to create a deep distrust of the industry itself. I think I saw obviously this is <laughs> this is um what's the word anecdotal evidence, but I did definitely see like a twitter thread by a i think a black woman doctor in america and she was saying that she herself even as a doctor doesn't fully trust the medical industry um because you know because of that history and then people in the in the comments were like oh why you need to prove to us you can't just you need to give examples you can't just tell us like oh just trust me it's like not worth trying to get black people to trust the industry at that at this point and people were like fully listing examples underneath that reply and it was constantly just like, well, that was so long ago. And they just, I like, again, it's this thing where you can tell these people are being deliberately obtuse with not recognizing the harms and sort of the very real consequences it is going to have even now. Because how can, like, if that happened to your community, how could you bring yourself to trust the industry? How can you say like, well, I'm sure, I'm sure it's fine this time. Like, it's completely ridiculous. And sorry, I'm not sure where I was going with this now. Do you guys have any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, the thing that the example that sprung to mind was um, of the um, birth control trials and how 
in the US in the 50s, they were just tested on Puerto Rican women. And just um, obviously, like, this was early stages of this trial. So, like, some people just ended up being, like, semi-accidentally sterilized and just oh kind goodness. of completely, um, just completely used as human guinea pigs, pretty much, um, by the US. And it's and that's, but obviously, at the same, this, in, in a way, it kind of links back into um how now it's obviously white feminists are able to be like yeah this these birth control pills are great because it gives women more choice about their bodies and opens up all these other avenues but it still comes from a history of racism and almost like eugenic undertones mm. um that even it's always um there's never there's always two sides almost in a, in the history of medical treatments no, absolutely. I just have a very small point here to make. Mm-hmm. This is also so evidenced in the fact that doctors who are often women and often non-white mm-hmm. are looked upon as not doctors. So this is a thing mm-hmm. where radiologists are going in to perform um, you know, procedures. I do not know what radiologists do, if they do surgeries or not. As I said, I do not have any knowledge of biology. Mm-hmm. Um so it said they were going in to perform procedures and the moment they would enter, the patients would go, oh, so you're the nurse. And they're like, no, I'm the doctor. And they're like, no, no, you're the nurse because of the way they were looking, which was usually that they were women or that they were POC and very often both, mm. right? So it's in the fact that people are demonized even when they're trying to save lives. It's also in the fact that the NHS currently is starving, right? It really needs people to uh, to 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 you know it just needs staff mm. and in it when you see that a large proportion of doctors and large proportion of nurses are not white they are or they're not british white they're from eastern europe they're from asia they're from africa they're from the caribbean and they're saving lives especially at a time like this especially at the time of a pandemic they're risking everything and what happens is they are demonized the moment they step out of their scrubs. They're looked upon as bad the moment they leave their, uh, their, their stethoscopes back. And it's the fact that you need these people to make sure healthcare survives. Mm. And you still want to be racist to them. Buzz off. Like, seriously. Screw you. <laughs> no, absolutely. And like, that's so wholly important as well. But I also think like, we don't, even taking away, even if they weren't like, you know, medical professionals and saving lives, even if they were literally just like, you know, I don't know, a cashier at McDonald's. It's, oh yeah, absolutely, uh, of course. Yeah, like there, you should just really be, you know, respectful. Like just don't be racist. What's the yeah, big it's the, yeah, it's like the base level <laughs> that like, we don't need, I don't even want to clap for people who are just like, I'm not racist because that should be so obvious. That should just be the basic level. But yeah, sorry. What I wanted to touch on a little bit as well was two things. One was um one thing I felt that I've noticed like on online somewhat is I follow quite a few trans women and I've noticed like especially for this one um half Filipino, I think, trans woman, I've I'm I I can't remember why I followed her. I probably found her on TikTok or something. <laughs> but she is I remember there was one point where she started trying to crowdfund for her transition um she wanted like facial feminization surgeries and I think like 
some other procedures she was hoping to um, get done. And the thing was, she talked so much about how people kept telling her like, oh, you know, you already look like a woman. What's the point? These aren't necessary. These are like, it's like, you don't you don't have to take these procedures. But the thing is, it's because she looked very Asian. And I think a lot of Asian men already are seen to be so, or at least East Asian men are seen to be so fem- feminized because, you know, they typically don't have a lot of facial hair. They tend to have like more petite frames than like white men. So like to a white perspective, Asian men already look feminized. And then to them, an Asian trans woman already looks feminine enough. But that's ignoring, you know, what are the cultural standards for what an Asian woman look like? Or, you know, just even even barring that, just the fact that each person's transition is so personal, whatever they deem medically necessary to their transition is medically necessary to their transition. And it was so frustrating for me to see that sort of like interplay between, you know, being raised and being LGBT and still being discriminated. And people were literally like pouring abuse on them for like asking for crowdfunding for these surgeries because they were like, you don't even need it. Like, what's the point? And like, why do you need to be so abusive yeah, for it, that? Like, it's so yeah. ridiculous. Just don't, just don't, don't just, just don't give them money if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. It's literally optional. She wasn't like, she wasn't holding a gun to anybody saying, like, <laughs> give me $500 or anything like that. And then, sorry, a secondary thing also, like, other than just like the trans aspect, also, I think, I can't remember which one of you mentioned something about mental health as well. Did one of you mention mental health? That might have been you in your head. <laughs> it might have been me in my head. But <laughs> yeah, like I also have a friend currently who's trying to get um their um their Chinese. Yes, their Chinese. Sorry, this is an online friend. But they're Chinese and they live in um they've they're diasporic in um America or Canada. I can't remember which now because they keep crossing the border. But they they've been trying so hard to get an ADHD diagnosis because they are in univer they are in university now and they're trying like obviously they're struggling because like I think when they went to a women doctor, like the doctor was like, Oh yeah, I just need to like pass you along to this person so you can get like if you like get their approval so you can get the meds for it because it's quite clear you seem to have ADHD. But then the problem was they got passed along to this um to a male I think he wasn't POC either doctor and he just kept putting them through so many um tests over and over and then obviously they also the thing is they also present quite feminine because they're also um they kind of have to because they also they're also a sex worker to to support themselves through university and part of that is that they can't really if they if they present it like more androgynously or more masculine as they sometimes do like to do the thing is that would also end up affecting their revenue because there's there's less demand for that in the sex worker industry. So because like they present so feminine and then also, yeah, it was the fact that they presented feminine and then also some aspects of their past where they have like certain traumas and all that. And then every other doctor that they'd been to by at that point was like, oh yeah, we it's quite clear you're probably going to have the ADHD diagnosis. But this one doctor just kept getting in their way because they're, like didn't understand really the cultural nuances or like and also kept judging them on the basis of being um looking feminine and was just like oh you know oh you're traumatized and you're a woman maybe you have like maybe you have PTSD maybe you have bipolar disorder and they were just like I know very well myself I don't have bipolar disorder I'm trying to get an ADHD diagnosis and I think even now they're still struggling with trying to get that diagnosis from that person and they're so worried because 
their insurance is also like starting to run out, so they can't keep going for these constant like tests and like and like checkups and all that. And you know, that's just another way that the industry like is can can kind of be positioned against like LGBT people and um and people of color. And then when you, when those intersect, that creates so many barriers to accessing the healthcare that these people desperately need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. That was a no, lot um, of examples. I can't get no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, David, uh, when you when you were talking about uh, the demasculize the demasculinization, uh, well, yeah, uh, of of Asian men, there mm. is a very good book about it. Um, I'll send you the title. I cannot remember its name. I read it last year, and it was all about how Asian men within Western cultures are looked upon as feminine, mm. right? And uh, then there was a whole section about how queer Asian men are looked upon in queer uh, Western circles. So mm-hmm. it was it was a very interesting, you know, notion of how uh, Asian men are always um, looked upon as non-masculine. Um, so yeah, um, as for the second point that you were talking about, it is so true. I mean, there is just so much that uh, that people have to go through to have basic survival. And then at the time when they are supposed to feel that they are being listened to, such as that in front of a therapist, and then they are being put through tests, they're being put through measures to prove that they are having problems. Mm. It's like, what are you trying to do here? What is the purpose of this uh, investigation? What are you trying to get me to do? It is frustrating and more than frustrating, it is just so wrong mm-hmm. yeah it's like that I th- well again to plug to plug the campaign post um <laughs> I think I was reading the one on medical racism and it said that something something like 62 percent of um people who are LGBT plus and POC suffer from I think it was depression um but just how mental health um mental health issues can affect um people of those identities so much more and then you the struggle of trying to um get a therapist um and being able to be diagnosed then if your ther- if the therapist that you go to just isn't just doesn't relate to your experience and isn't able to help you because maybe they're maybe they're white or maybe they're um having got similar experience of the lgbt community in the way that they can't um kind of maybe like recognize what you're talking about in the same way which somewhat seems similar in how in like the wider medical profession as you were talking about is just um the kind of like so many how it affects people so much more and yet there's just so many different um different levels that that um almost like different hoops that they have to jump through just to get the same basic medical care yeah I mean sorry I was thinking oh yeah I think even like in Durham University we've only recent I believe it's only recently that we got I think a counsellor or psych I don't know if it's a counsellor or therapist or school psychiatrist I don't really know what the title is but one that is POC for Durham University and then now I, th- I think it's quite recently, <laughs> and, but telling. the thing is, there's only one, and also like the Deepoka is trying to, I think, expand on that to have like a wider like 
like you know more poc like therapists or like counselors to goodness, really not sure if what that's happened no honest to goodness if that's happened that's that's just like such a relief yeah exactly because i don't then have to go first uh, i don't have to go private very nice yeah because the obviously there are going to be these like cultural nuances that white people won't understand from about poc cultures and growing up in poc cultures and the thing is even just having like one poc like obviously it's great that we finally have a poc therapist counselor whatever the title is i really should check <laughs> but um <laughs> but the thing like as we mentioned before like within the poc community is such a huge variety of different experiences and different cultures that you it's also not fair to just expect that one poc therapist to be able to relate to every single person absolutely well. and like they are going to be very high in demand because there's obviously quite a lot of racism and you know pe- people of color in durham who are going to need those services and it's ah oh, i got too worked up and now i can't remember where i was going with this again no queer people of color having mental health issues hey. yeah. <laughs> yeah and it's just you know like we need these like resources so desperately and the truth is that we we don't we often don't have them like if if i wanted to go to a counselor to relate it to me i'd have to find someone who is both poc and lgbt plus and also like more specifically like you know non-binary as well and that's in itself is kind of a niche that it's going to my options if I wanted to go for like therapy and stuff is going to be so difficult to like find someone who fully understands and that's always going to be a barrier for other LGBT plus people of color as well because our experiences are quite specific when you go to a medical professional who doesn't quite understand those nuances it's really just you know just so many barriers to getting access to the help you need and it's really frustrating because it's something that you know i guess it's very difficult for us to for any of us to do in the, anything about individually but it's a problem that really needs to be addressed and really needs to be brought to the attention of people who can do something about it people who can like look for these resources and you know make them available to uni students as well and things like that definitely definitely so just to wrap up anna We'd love to hear from you. What is your gay agenda? So my gay agenda right now is to create a space where everybody is equal and respected, where differences are not tolerated but accepted and celebrated, and where people who hate other people, so you include all of your um, all of your sexists there, you include your racists there, you include xenophobes there, include people who hate queer people in general there. and uh we put them on a boat and we let them out on the english channel in the middle of winter yeah i think that's a good way to put it right now our thanks to hannah and arna for their time and the wonderful insights that they've shared thanks as well to josh who edited this episode and cut together our new intro to see more from the lgbt plus association's campaign for intersectionality awareness look for our posts on facebook instagram and twitter If you're interested in getting involved with the LGBT+ community in Durham, the association hosts many online socials, there's a book club, and even a Discord server where people can chat or play games. For information on all of these, check out our social media. In the meantime, we wish everyone a happy holidays and see you on the next episode of The Gay Agenda. Hold up. 
Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.